Welcome to the Voices from the Road podcast, our sixth and final episode of the first series with me, Valerie Singleton. In this edition, we crawl across East Anglia on a very foggy Christmas Eve night in 1958, and we hear about one family's excitement on taking delivery of their very first car to their naval base home in the Netherlands. But let's go back almost to the start of our period, to 1933. It's a cold Saturday evening in late January. The Perriam family are on the road between Boston and Spalding in Lincolnshire. Young Jack is driving. Gerard is the front passenger. Ruby and George are in the back with the family friend Mrs Taylor. All is going well, until the car loses grip and starts to skid. Before they know it, the Perriams are involved in a very nasty crash. Thanks to a detailed letter written shortly afterwards by Gerard and chance discovery by great-grandson David, we've been able to revisit the whole incident and to find out just what happened in the early 1930s when something went very wrong on the road. So let's join David in a conversation with our consultant historian, Dr. Alan Wakeley, as they attempt to work through the details of that cold January night in 1933. Hello, I'm David Perriam. I live in Ashley Green in Buckinghamshire and I work as a planning officer for Oxfordshire County Council. And I'm Alan Wakeley. Uh, I'm retired. I'm in my 70s now, but I'm a historian uh, and a fairly regular contributor to Good Motoring. Now, some years ago, I think probably back in about 2005, 2006, I was rummaging through an old suitcase I found in the back of a shed, and it had lots of information related to my father's father's family. And I came across a pencil written letter of about five or six sheets, and it was written by my great-grandfather Perriam to my grandfather Perriam back in about 1933. The vast majority of the letter was to let him know that my great-grandfather and other members of the family had been involved in a bad car accident. So this was my great-grandfather, Gerard Perriam, his wife, Ruby, two of their sons, Jack and George. Jack was driving and George, I think, was only a very small child at the time. And a friend called Mrs. Taylor, about whom, sadly, I know nothing more. And this was in a place, I think, called Sutterton in Lincolnshire. Yes, I believe it is Sutterton. Uh, I've seen the letter, or at least a facsimile of it, uh, and it's certainly an interesting little vignette almost on a cold, snowy night at the end of January 1933. Quite a horrible accident, and in quite a large car, from what I make out. And there are a lot of people in it anyway, uh, and it's described as a Humber. And by the sound of it, it's a fairly large Humber. So I'm assuming it was a Humber snipe. I think the letter said it had a Humber body, which implied it may have a non-Humber engine, but I don't suppose that was necessarily the case. That, I'm afraid, I don't know. No. I can't say I looked at the car specifications. But anyway, a large Humber car. Both of us, I think, at separate times, have been to see the scene of the accident. I went up there last week knowing we were going to have this conversation. But I believe you've been too, trying to look for Rose Cottage uh, outside which it took place, and which I think is one of the items in the letter uh, designed to say exactly where it was. I went up there, I think it was in the summer of 2006, so some while ago. It took a bit of me driving around and looking at maps, but I did eventually find what I thought was the Sutterton Bens referred to, and I, and I think you're right, there was also a Rose Cottage. Yeah, the word used is rather on into Sutterton rather than back into Sutterton. Mm. And they were coming from Boston to Spalding at the time, weren't they? Which is also yeah. in the letter. So we're north of Sutterton, 
there's now, whether it was there uh, when you went in 2006, I wouldn't know, there is now quite a big lay-by on the uh, western side of the road, which clearly was part of the road for a long while. And I wonder if that was the bend, because it would have been a horrendous start to a series of bends which are still there, just north of Southerton. Yeah, I must admit, I can't recall, but I, I mean, I know a lot of councils, and I think particularly in the 1930s, on the back of the um, Great Depression, a lot of money was put into roadworks, I think, and therefore you do find a lot of these road schemes where they were trying to iron out the bends in roads. Yeah, I don't think this one goes back that far. The road surfaces would have contributed to the accident. At least I wouldn't be surprised to find they would. Were your family quite well to do then? I don't think so, but if they were, we must have slipped somehow. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, my grand, great grandfather, I believe, was an engineer at one time, and then I think he may have been involved in sales somehow, and that might have accounted yeah. for why he had a vehicle possibly at that time. Um, well, if it was probably car sales, one would have thought of anything. Uh, we are, I, any Humber car was pretty expensive in the 1930s. Yeah. We are talking about really at the top end of things. The King and Queen had not just Rolls Royces, but Humbers, a really nice, luxurious car. Uh, the price was £535. Now, that's very difficult to quantify nowadays. Uh, it's five times the annual salary at the time. But so many prices have changed. And when I looked other things up, uh, out of curiosity at the time, to find that petrol was at the time and translated into modern money, 1.65 pence a litre. But the, I mean, the interesting things to me about this accident, of course, are why did it happen and would it still happen? How hmm. has road safety improved or has it? The driver would not have taken the test. There weren't any driving tests until the mid-30s, and this no. is ahead of them. So one, the driver would have had no test. Two, this was a big, powerful car. It would have been capable of something like 70 miles an hour, which was a heck of a speed for vehicles then. But it was one of the few made that would have done that. Now, I don't think you'd be likely to be going at that rate. But nonetheless, it's a big, powerful car with a necessarily untested driver. He won't have been used to a lot of traffic. There were no speed limits at the time. There had been a 20 mile an hour speed limit, which was abolished in 1930. And from then until 1936, there were no speed limits at all until the 30 limit in built-up areas came in under the 1936 Act. So question, how fast was he going? I think Jack, if I'm correct, was born in 1916, so that would make him about 17, I guess. So probably one of his early, early attempts at driving, I wouldn't be surprised. It could well have been. Um, there wasn't, so far as I'm aware, an age limit at all. Then there's a state of the road. You're right that an awful lot of new roads were built during that time, quite far-sightedly of the government, really in order to give work to people who become unemployed during the Depression. A lot of roads were not necessarily very good then. The usual procedure was to get the rough road, the old stone road, sling a layer of asphalt on the top of it, and a layer of gravel, which was literally thrown out of a bucket over the top of that, and the whole lot was covered with a road roller, and that was it. When you think of the number of layers there are now in our roads, that was not really a very good surface, and probably with a lot of loose grit on it. Then we know that the night this happened, the weather was appalling, don't we? Certainly, well, it reads as such, yes. It reads. I, I mean, I, I imagine there was no street lighting. Uh, there would have been, no, you're before the village, uh, and apparently, uh, I mean, from the weather forecast or weather report for that day, there was snow and ice. It was, you know, ghastly conditions for driving in. And one other thing to say about driving, you're driving a 
This is a 17-year-old driving a huge, powerful car on an appalling road surface in ghastly weather, and it had one small windscreen wiper. Yes. Which won't have helped with headlights that won't have been terrific, and if there was a lot of snow, visibility would have been impaired anyway. So, I mean, one can almost forgive the guy for the crash in some ways, although clearly uh, it was of grave concern to your family, although everybody did survive, didn't they? Sounds to me, if I recall, that both my great-grandfather and Jack had some bad cuts, and I'd yeah. imagine they had some bad bruises, And but I don't think the other people in the car... Well, there's anything recorded specifically about their injuries, although my great-grandmother, well, I should say she was my step-great-grandmother because my grandfather's actual mother died when he was about eight. So this was my great-grandfather's second wife, by whom he then had three children, including Jack and George. I think the letter records that she was still suffering from her nerves when, when he, and didn't really want him to get another car. But, but I'm sure pretty certain, I'm pretty certain he would have done. <laughs> if he was anything like my grandfather, my father, I'm sure he would have done. Yeah, I mean, accidents were a commonplace then anyway. The number of fatalities in 1930 on British roads was just over 7,500. The roads would have been, as we've established, not built to the same standard. There wouldn't have been the lighting. There would have been a lot less cars on the road than there are now, but presumably proportionately a lot more accidents. Yes, certainly more accidents. And the number of cars has gone up from 2 million to 30 million. Uh, And that's a huge increase in the other direction. So roads have become a great deal safer over that time. And of course, when people are involved in accidents, the response is much quicker as well. This story in the letter talks of them finding the local doctor and they're getting on a bus and going back to Boston. And this is on a snowy night, presumably fairly late on in the evening too. Uh, and nowadays, I doubt if there would be a bus and you wouldn't want it anyway, you want an ambulance. Well, yes. Yeah, so there's n- nothing in the letter that suggests there was any emergency services involved. I believe that it rec- says that Jack, a passing motorcyclist, picked Jack up and took him off to... Uh, Into the village uh, to find the doctor, wasn't it? Yeah, and then the rest followed on. And then I think a key part in them sort of recuperating was they went to the pub for a drink, I think. Yeah, that's right. And the car was recovered the following morning, wasn't it? They all still went back on the bus to Boston. The yeah. Or on yeah. Spalding whatever, and came back for the car. What yes. was left of it? And I, and I suppose another thing with these cars, there'd be no safety glass, would there? Presumably it's just fairly basic glass. And no safety belts? No safety belts, no. I mean... Nothing. It's amazing to me, based on how the letter's written and my how we sort of from that can imagine what happened, that they escaped with the injuries they did, really. I think they were extremely lucky. The letter says that, you know, they missed a big tree under telegraph pole, sort of managed yeah. to get between them somehow, didn't they? Uh, yes. And the brakes would have been poor because in those days, cars generally only had brakes in the front. I can't be sure for that Humber model. And indeed, we're not exactly sure which Humber model it was. It's referred to as a Humber in the letter, I think, but beyond that, we're not quite sure which model. So it does show how enormously things have changed since. Often it's difficult to really understand how. Um, I love looking up to st- films of street life at that time just to see how many things are totally different that we really don't relate to. That was a conversation between David Perriam and Dr Alan Wakeley about a crash on a road in Lincolnshire in January 1933. We jump ahead now to 1955 and arguably the most newsworthy event of the year is directly concerned with motoring. At the Paris Motor Show, Citroen stuns the world with the DS. Many years later, it wins the award for the most beautiful car of all time. Well, that might be debated, but its effect in 1955 is utterly astounding. One commentator said it had fallen from the sky and an incredible 743 are ordered in the first 15 minutes. 
As well as space age looks, it features disc brakes and power steering, both highly innovative in normal production cars. It isn't cheap, but it changes car design forever. Oh, and another bit of news from 1955. Churchill retired. Christa Block van Koffler, a gem member of Austrian, German and Belgian heritage, is excited as a youngster to await the arrival of their very first family car. He's living at a Dutch naval establishment where his father is based, and the plan is to take it across on the ferry for a holiday in England. However, things don't go quite according to plan, as Chris now explains. Uh, my father had just come back from the United States, uh, brought a ship back to Holland, and with the waiting money that we had, uh, we were able to buy the first family car. The car chosen was an Austin A30, and in Holland it was the 22nd uh, car of that make uh, and type uh, on the road, and we felt very exclusive uh, mm. <laughs> because of, of uh, that fact. The uh, summer holidays were always... Uh, brought in, in the UK, and that summer it was all destined to be in Cornwall. My father only had 18 days leave, so he was to bring the car across uh, after we had already uh, entered the UK. The car that we chose, we had delivered in time so that the car could be run in in Holland before the long trip to from Harwich uh, to Cornwall. My father uh, did diligently ran the car up to the necessary time for it to be had it have its first service, and when that came about, uh, the garage realised that um, there was something very seriously wrong with the car, and it had to be returned to the importer Stockfish in Rotterdam, uh, and the uh, importer then provided yet another new car. That meant that my father had to. Uh, start off again running in yet another new car. And since time was short for him, he crossed when his leave began to Harwich and then set off from Harwich in the car, uh, left-hand drive car, doing 30 miles an hour top speed uh, for running in. Uh, from No motorways in those days, mm -hmm. all A roads, from Harwich down to Foy in Cornwall. He did it in one day. The pressures in the car were such that he... On the longer trips, uh, he used his uh, left foot uh, on the accelerator pedal and his right foot across in the passenger compartment to relieve uh, the strain. Once we arrived in uh, Foy, we enjoyed the holiday. But at one point we were parked in, I think it was Falmouth, and my mother had gone to do some shopping. And uh, the car, we were parked with the car alongside of the road. The town was busy. The Weather was good, so we had the windows wound down, and there was quite a lot of people walking about, amongst which was a family, rather vocal family, who um, came up behind the car and suddenly exclaimed, oh, look, there's a foreign registered car. Then they exclaimed, oh, look, it's got NL on the back. I wonder where that is. And there was some discussion. Uh, and because of the fact that uh, foreign registered cars were far and few between in 1955 in, in the UK, NL didn't mean it, it very much to them, but they decided that it must belong to the Commonwealth, so the car had to come from the Nyasa land. Uh, we didn't enlighten them, but uh, left them, left them in, in just in, in their discussions as to where you know, how Nyasa land uh, came in with the Commonwealth, but still, there we are. <laughs> that, <laughs> That's the story of, of 
the car in 1955 anyway. Chris de Block van Kuffler, remembering the pain of his 1955 road trip across the south of England in the new family car. Finally for this episode, we find ourselves in 1958. For many people, this will always be remembered as the year of the Munich air crash, which killed more than 20 people, including eight members of the Manchester United's first team squad. Thankfully, news for motorists is more positive. The Preston Bypass opens in December. It's Britain's very first stretch of motorway and now forms part of the M6, although this number is not used to start with. The year also sees the installation of the country's first parking metres. These, of course, are rather less popular with motorists than the motorway, but there are no traffic wardens for some years, so for a while the enforcement of penalties remains patchy. Fast forward to December. To Christmas Eve, in fact. Douglas Harper is looking forward to finishing work and having a brief Christmas holiday which will be spent with family in Ipswich. But with rapidly deteriorating weather and a failing electric system on his car, he starts to worry that he's not going to make it. Okay, well, in 58, I was living in Birmingham. I was working at Dunlop Research Centre and um, I needed to come to Ipswich for Christmas. Dunlop's was a rather strange company and I they were, they were pretty abstemious with their holidays, shall we say. And the <laughs> earliest I could possibly escape was about three o'clock on Christmas Eve. Um, and had it not been a Wednesday Christmas Eve, I, I would have needed to have been back at work um, before the weekend. Oh. Yeah, so we need we need to come to Ipswich. I had this very worn 1939 Morris 8 Series E. That, that was the device. Um, and it reminded people that we didn't have anything like heaters or demisters. <laughs> no heater, no water pump. Dynamo output, six volts, quite limited. Such that this important thing, really, if you've got a full light load on, you need to be doing something in the region of 30 miles an hour to, um, to charge a battery. And the, the plan was that I was going to slip out of Dunlop's at uh, about three o'clock, if I could. My wife was going to be at the car park so that we could get in the motor car and, um, and run away to Ipswich. In those days, it, it would take about five and a half hours in a car like that. When I came out, when I went in in the morning, it was a lovely bright sunlight morning. When I came out, it was freezing fog, and I had to de-ice a wretched thing before I could start, um, inside and outside. In, in, incidentally, of course, with um, those days, you used a cut potato or something like that, but I was more scientific. I had a, a mixture of, of alcohol and with a bit of glycerin in it to, um, to, to defrost windscreens. So we set off at about three o'clock. The idea was to get from Dunlop, which was at Erdington, to Stonebridge, because the road then was numbered the A45. There was no M1 or anything like that. The road um, went from Stonebridge, skirted Coventry, Rugby, Daventry, down to Weedon, where it crossed the A5, which was the way to go to London. And then the A45 continued to Northampton, Wellingborough, to St Neots, to Cambridge, to Ipswich. It wasn't too bad going until I got to Stonebridge. 
um, where I joined the A45, I got reminded by a little skid that it was, um, it was in fact freezing. So when I got to um, Stonebridge, I um, needed to stop to get the ice off inside and outside the, the, the windscreen. So I did that, and um, my lucky star happened because drew up behind me came an, an old Elvian lorry. I got in conversation with the driver, and he told me he was going to London. He was de-icing de as well, um, and he'd come up that day, and things weren't at all good, and he advised me to follow him because he thought he could go through that fog better than I could because of his high driving position and that I should follow his red light the single little red light that they had in those pre-MOT days. We set off and we, we journeyed as far as Whedon, where the junction of the A5 is, um, and we were doing about 20 miles an hour or so, I suppose, most of the way. Just the wrong sort of speed for Series E because it demanded top gear um, yeah. at that sort of uh, speed, but you... I couldn't stay in top gear because it was, things were a bit variable a lot of the while. And I certainly um, was discharging the battery slowly most of the way, even without headlights on, which the chap told me was a good idea. So we got to Whedon. Um, he stopped and we wished one another all the best. He trundled off towards London and I trundled off um, eastwards. It was a pretty steep learning curve after that okay. because without him there and with no street lights, I um, could see very, very little. And we ended up finding our way. Um, my wife was sort of peering out of the left-hand side to see if she could still see the curb. The curb loomed a bit too much. She said, go out. If the curb started to disappear, she said, come back. And my job was to, um, was to try to, um, to, to look out forward. Red lights seemed to be quite easy to see. There was very, very little traffic about. With the traffic we passed in the opposite direction, you could see their lights quite well. The problem was just simply the back um, reflection off the ice crystals in the in this freezing fog. If you had headlights on at all, you could see virtually nothing. But on side lights, we crept along in second gear, had to curb a few times, got right up on the verge, oh. <laughs> one, um, which was a bit severe. Um, and um, whenever there was any street light, of course, things helped a bit and eventually got to Northampton. We got through Northampton quite well. It was quite well lit. Um, and um, I'd only ever been that way about twice before, but um, we got through there back into the countryside. It was pretty awful again, but we were getting an act together at that stage and did um, quite well. I thought all second gear, the car, didn't like this very much. The lack of water pump meant that things were getting pretty hot in the front portion. And I was also concerned because of the worn state of the thing. I'd got 
virtually no oil pressure I knew. Welling, Wellingborough came, same thing there. There were streetlights were fairly adequate, got through there okay. And then we set out towards St. Neitz. Now, that was the most rural part of the whole thing. We, we just had to continue. There was nothing more we could do. Every so often I had to stop and, um, and get some more of my mixture on the windscreen. Windscreen wipe was absolutely useless, of course. But we stopped in St. Neitz to crack our cold flask of coffee and eat a bun. Mm-hmm. Um, I was so frightened at the stage of the uh, state of the battery at that time that I, I turned the slow running up so that as we stood, I'm having our refreshment with the engine running, the battery was on the charging side, probably equivalent to driving along in top gear about 30 miles an hour, I suppose. Yeah. And um, I began to think we were doing fairly well until, of course, we came to descend into Cambridge. And the benefit of the odd street lights in Cambridge were um, outweighed by the by the thickness of the fog, particularly as we had to cross the um, the cam and the wet area in in the middle of, of Cambridge. Yeah. And I know at that time it was approaching midnight, so we'd been going plenty long enough, um, and the. Brightness of my lights, my side lights, was dependent on my throttle. So that would tell you what sort of state the battery was in. And I began to get quite um, quite alarmed, I think. But we came up out of Cambridge. All of a sudden, we emerged into a starlight night. Within minutes, I'd got... Headlights blazing. I even got a little bit of oil pressure. The smells were going, and we were zooming along at um, at the cruising speed. That is to say, just a bit over forty miles an hour. A straight run home from there. Except you must remember that the roads are not improved at that time. We had to go through Newmarket. We had to go through Bury St Edmunds. Had to yeah. go through Stowmarket, Needham Market, um, into Ipswich. It was a, a two-hour run. And there were just odd little patches of fog from time to time, but nothing. Um, they were pretty alarming when you sort of saw them again. We just thought we were going back to what we had before. But um, no, um, there was virtually nothing to them. And we arrived home at about two o'clock on Christmas morning. Yes, fell straight into bed. That yeah. was that. And regrettably, we didn't see any sign of Father Christmas. I can't recall seeing a single car all the way from Cambridge to home. Douglas Harper recounting his perilous Christmas Eve journey from Birmingham to Ipswich. And that's it for the current season of the Voices from the Road podcast. We'll be out and about looking for more recordings as we aim to capture an interesting conversation for every year since 1932. So, for the time being, on behalf of the production team, this is Valerie Singleton saying goodbye and thanks very much for listening.